DDoS attacks. What can we expect next? Hi, this is Tom Field, Vice President of Editorial with Information Security Media Group. I'm discussing DDoS today with Dan Holden. He's Director of ACERT with Arbor Networks. Dan, it's a pleasure to talk with you again. Uh, you too. I appreciate you having me on. So, Dan, Arbor has just released its latest DDoS attack trends report. I want to ask you a couple of questions about key findings. First of all, what can you tell us about the size of attacks that you've been reviewing? Uh, well, it's certainly been a, a trend <clears throat> over the, the uh, especially Q3, that average attacks have gotten larger, uh, which is a big change. The majority of your attacks just over the Internet in general are generally uh, small, related to uh, gaming attacks or small websites, that sort of activity. So the average attack isn't all that large, but... Of the attacks that are over 20 gigs, those attacks have risen dramatically um, over the recent months, and, and that's uh, that's been one of the big changes. Overall, regardless of what size the attack, whether over one gig or, or you know up to 20 and larger, the trend has certainly been that the attacks are, are getting larger. Uh, now, obviously, of course, the internet is getting larger as well, so the bandwidth capability of, of both us as users. And that of the attackers is going up. Now that's going to be a, a, a regional difference. You know, each region and infrastructure is going to be different. But uh, I don't expect to see this trend uh, go down anytime soon. So attacks are getting larger. What can you tell us about the length of the attacks? And if you put these two metrics together, what should we draw from that? In most cases, the attacks are actually under an hour. I, I think our, our statistic is about 87% of the attacks are under an hour. It, it all depends on the motive of the attack. You know, again, if it's a, a gaming type of attack or a small website, and let me just give you a couple quick examples. Extortion, for example, doesn't need to be a very long attack. All you're trying to do is prove a point and, and get money out of the victim. You, you know, if you're trying to, of course, go after a very large website, say a financial institution or government, or uh, it's related to hacktivism and there's a um, election going on or, or some other thing, you know, taking the site down for a longer period of time is far more important. Uh, so it all depends on the motive of the attack. But most attacks, and, and I'll just give you one more example, in the case of DDoS services that are hired, uh, many of them have five or ten minute trials So we, where they can prove that, of course, the DDoS service is um, legitimate and good and actually works. Uh, I use legitimate loosely, of course. You know, those attacks only last a few minutes, and then you think it's gone, and, and then, of course, they, they do hire the service and it comes back. So a couple examples of, of both sides of that. Most attacks, of course, are, are under an hour, and, and again, it's, it's just going to depend on your particular risk is, you know, how, how much you think you're at risk, what you're protecting, that sort of thing. Because of course, the motivation can be varied. So, Dan, as we sit here today, the attacks that we've seen against U.S. banking institutions really have subsided. But what lessons can we draw from the past year's experience of the four waves of attacks on banks? Well, you know, I, when, when discussing the U.S. financial attacks, I try and look on the bright side. Uh, if, if you compare us in October of 2013 to September of 2012 when they first hit, <clears throat> certainly the banks have better infrastructure and protection in place today than they did a year ago. That's the good part. Their ability to react and their ability to collaborate and communicate with their upstream ISP providers and defenders is far better. Their visibility into a lot of these attacks, especially from an on-premise standpoint, you know, whether they're under attack, and, and again, their ability to react uh, quickly is far, far better. 
And so you can look at those attacks and say, you know, they were terrible and, you know, what was it? Was it hacktivism or was it nation-state funded? Lots of good questions, lots of good lessons learned. But at the end of the day, of course, the financials are now considered extended critical infrastructure. And from that standpoint, they're better defended today than they were a year ago. And, and of course, that's in many cases what it takes with security, whether that's physical or, or you know, related to the Internet. I think that a series of attacks really highlighted that the application level is definitely at risk, and if you really want to have a targeted DDoS attack, application is, is probably your best bet. It's, it's very, very effective, and it does not require tons of bandwidth um, or tons of capability. What it takes is a, is a very focused and persistent attacker. So the application is a big part, and I think the the need for some on-premise visibility and protection has also been another lesson learned. If you need to defend against an attack quickly, that becomes more difficult when it's a cloud-based type of defense. And so I think that was one of the other uh, issues that the, these series of attacks brought up. So Dan, one of the things I think about often is this huge bot, yeah, the so-called brobot that was developed to sort of engineer these attacks. Now that the attacks on the banks are done, or at least have subsided, what becomes of this massive botnet? That's an excellent question and, and remains to be seen. You know, it, it, it still does exist. It's just a question of, you know, maintenance. They're certainly not growing it. But uh, any number of things could, could happen, you know, whether, again, whether it's activism or it's nation-state funded, uh, it could be used for other purposes. One of the things that I had questioned is whether it might be repurposed based on uh, U.S. interaction and influence in Syria. Thankfully, that that has has not happened, but it could certainly be just laying, uh, you know, kind of laying in wait, and they're looking for another chance to use it. Given the size of the attacks, the longevity of the attacks, the fact that it still exists, you know, it certainly leads to the assumption that it is funded at some level. Um, you know, and that could be by whomever or, or you know, whatever whatever group or organization, but. I'd be somewhat surprised if we've seen the last of it. Uh, there was a, you know, there was a sizable investment in that. I imagine it's it's just like many other weapons. It's <laughs> kind of stockpiled and, and put away for the time being, and if it needs to be brought out, it can be. Dan, based on your experience, what would you say we have learned about the attackers and who potentially could be the next target of them? Historically, with Internet security, it's, it's generally been government and then finance. One is holding all the secrets, and the other one is holding all the money. Uh, and so those are, you know, always been kind of the, the two places where attackers um, chase. The next vertical really seems to be more involved in, in kind of the next aspect of our, our critical, in, critical infrastructure. Um, there's been a lot of attacks around infrastructure related to oil, gas, that sort of thing. And <clears throat> not necessarily, you know, generally when that sort of thing comes up, you think SCADA. Um, there's certainly lots of SCADA vulnerabilities in existence, but I don't think we've seen a a huge level of uh, attacks. Although once you've got once you've got numerous vulnerabilities, uh, you know all sorts of things become more possible. But that seems to be a vertical where there's more interest uh, being gained. So it's just going to be a question of what is the reward for the attacker and who is that attacker. So is there any ability for you know typical cybercrime to profit off of that vertical? If not, then of course the risk is going to be quite different. And then you're thinking more you know, nation-state or hacktivist, in other words, more politically-type motivated or movement-based. And uh, certainly, you know, I think it would be naive of anyone, especially over the last four years, to think that, 
you know, those kinds of motivations are not a, a certainly a, a big, big portion of the, the modern threat landscape. It's not all, you know, money focused at this point. And if it's not, I think that vertical is going to make uh, certainly uh, more interesting to attackers, especially given the fact that their defenses are not going to be anywhere near as good as, as your government and finance. So I think that might be one of the reasons why other verticals are chosen to be attacked is at this point, uh, you know, the, the Fed space and financial space is just much better defended. So if you want a, a better ROI on your attack, looking at other verticals is, you know, certainly the easiest way to do that. Dan, you use an interesting term talking about the, the modern sort of threat landscape. Give us a sense of how DDoS now fits into this threat landscape. It's something we didn't pay attention to for a number of years, but sort of come back with a, a vengeance. What's its place now? That's an excellent question, yeah, and it's it's actually made defending against DDoS a bit more difficult. Um, I think most people think of DDoS, they think of SynFlood, you know, the original kind of attacks that we saw way back in the day from Mafia Boy, et cetera. And then, you know, throughout the mid-2000s, it was all about cybercrime and, and botnets. And so what happened, of course, is that, you know, spamming became less profitable, and, and a lot of folks looked at repurposing those botnets, and, and um, DDoS was certainly an area that they, they looked at and could repurpose those botnets for. And then I think the big wake-up call for everyone uh, was, you know, Anonymous initially attacked Scientology and Tom Cruise, and, you know, that was, you know, whatever that was. <laughs> and then 2010 rolls around, and you've got WikiLeaks, same operation payback, and, and most CSOs and CISOs that I've talked to, they really say that's when DDoS was kind of reawakened for them. They really started paying attention, and DDoS, you know, really hit their radar. So I think there have been a couple big shifts. That was certainly a, a big one, you know, just showing that a DDoS attacks do not have to be your typical botnet, but can be more of an opt-in movement-based botnet uh, where you are, you know, volunteering to be a part of something. And, of course, the fact that DDoS can be used as a form of protest and, um, you know, as, as a tool for uh, various movements and activism. I think the other two big ones in recent history that are really helping to define more of the, the modern threat landscape, especially as it pertains to DDoS, of course, the, the U.S. financial attacks, a, a very big deal. Um, the spam house attack, another example of just, you know, massive bandwidth and a, an attack that many were not familiar with being used. DDoS is not only pushing the boundaries in terms of what is capable and what, you know, what most people's assumptions are, but it's also now a feature of the threat landscape. So historically, I think most people think of DDoS as a network problem, right? It's a, it's a traffic problem. It's a plumbing problem. Big pipe going into a small pipe. And again, that kind of goes back to the, the sin flood type of mentality. Uh, but the U.S. finance attacks definitely prove that, no, that's that's not necessarily the case. If, if you are focused and persistent, you can go after the application layer, and it's very damaging and very successful. Uh, and I think there are many attacks and many examples now where DDoS has been used alongside other attacks. We do see APT-related malware with DDoS features built into tools. Um, so more and more, DDoS isn't used just as a uh, a distraction but it's really used in parallel with these attacks to make them more successful. Um, so, again, the defenders are getting better, and the attackers are looking to get the best ROI they can, regardless of what the motive is. So, you know, DDoS is, is definitely kind of uh, reawakened, re-energized, and, and whatever other terms you want to throw at it. It's, it's definitely here to stay, and it's only getting worse. 
Well, final question for you. It really builds upon that answer. The attacks have morphed. You see the target shifting. How should organizations in any sector be assessing their DDoS preparation right now? That's a great question, and I look at DDoS the same way as I look at any, you know, defending any of your your assets. You've got to look at what your particular risk is. One of the the most dangerous things you can do, of course, is is kind of follow the herd. There are definitely best practices when it comes to defending against DDoS. That is absolutely true. But when when you just blindly say things like best practices or defense in depth, those terms don't necessarily, or, or even anything related to compliance. You know, those aren't raising the bar. Um, you know, those are those are where kind of everybody else already is. So, you know, you, you can't you can't just follow everyone else. I think you've really got to judge your specific environment. Organizations are, are just like people; they're all different, and what you're defending is going to be different than you know another vertical or even a competitor. Uh, so, I think judging what you're defending against is important. The other thing to think about with DDoS is to get out of an IT mindset and in, in, into more of a, a business asset type of mentality. So what I mean by that is, you know, in the old days, we would walk through a server room and, you know, one server would be labeled with www and, you know, that was your web server. That was, you know, a long time ago, but that mentality is kind of still with us, right? When you think about protecting something, a lot of people still think in terms of IT assets, not um, not the data or or you know, the the business assets. So it's important to realize that if you're protecting a website, for instance, that website is is a lot of various pieces. It's it's your your bandwidth and your service coming in from your ISP. It's all of your perimeter and edge technologies, which are potential bottlenecks. It is the server, of course, but it's also the application. Uh, And so you've got lots of different areas, potential weakness, different areas that could become bottlenecks. And so what you have to think of is, you know, I've got, six or eight different aspects that really comprise this business asset and how am I going to protect that rather than just looking at it as how do I protect this box or how do I protect the network. And I think that outlook, of course, is perpetualized because of, you know, various responsibilities within the organization. But at the higher levels, you've really got to look at it as a business problem and you've got to judge the risk based on the risk to the business rather than to just the network or the particular IT asset. So. That would be my initial guidance on just how to think about it. Well, Dan, that's great advice. As always, I appreciate your time and your insight. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Lots of fun. Thank you. The topic has been DDoS attacks, what to expect next. I've been talking with Dan Holden, Director of ACERT with Arbor Networks. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much.